ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is to wish him dead. What the younger son is saying is, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. My relationship with you has just been a means to an end. I want my stuff now. Unheard of, but even more unheard of, <laughs> is the second half of verse 12. A traditional Middle Eastern father could only respond in one way. He would be expected to drive the boy out of the house, but this father doesn't do that. Today in the Songtime broadcast, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we'll hear from Timothy Keller as we look at a very familiar parable, the parable of the prodigal son, and, and really how the focal point is not on the one who goes away, but the son who remains. Stay tuned for that message, but first, we're going to be talking with Guy Waters as we discover the theological implications of the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. Earlier this year, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, we were studying Luke chapter 6, and we paused on this statement of Jesus, where he declared to be Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is not just a passing phrase in Luke's Gospel. It's actually something that reoccurs as we reflect upon the ministry of Jesus, in particular, on the Sabbath day. It is all throughout the Gospel of Luke, and it's carried even into the book of Acts itself. But in all of this, we see a prominent storyline where Jesus is declaring to be the Sabbath for his people. Now, there are many layers to this, and uh, we could spend hours and days and weeks on end talking about Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath, and in fact, uh, we still would not be able to get to the bottom of it because it is so deep, so rich. But ultimately, what we're seeing, especially within the context and the confines of this messaging, is that Jesus is looking at people who are working for themselves to earn their righteousness. And what he's saying to them is, I am the Sabbath. I'm the thing that you rest in. I'm the thing that you trust in. Not your works, not your your righteousness, not your good deeds. And that's a theme we're going to actually be seeing even here in Luke chapter 15 later on when we study the story of the prodigal son. But first, we're going to be joined by Guy Waters, who's the author of a unique book called The Sabbath as Rest and Hope for the people of God. It's part of the short studies in biblical theology. It is a great privilege to have a scholar, a theologian, a professor, and a pastor who understands this issue to join us today and help us dig into this idea of Sabbath as not only a theological definition, but also the gospel that is proclaimed through the ministry of Jesus. So, Guy, thank you so much for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Adam, thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Now, I mentioned you are a pastor, you're a theologian, a scholar, I would say. Uh, Obviously, the idea of Sabbath as rest and hope for uh, the people of God is a topic that would be something that would resonate with you because, I mean, you're, you're in that field. But why, for any of our listeners, is this a subject that they should be encouraged by or aware of? Great question. I'd say, in the first place, this is something that's not for professionals. It's something for all Christians, and it's something that God has built into the way that he's designed us to function well as human beings. We need rest, and we live in a restless world, and we could talk easily for 30 minutes about all the symptoms of living in a restless world and what that does in in life and culture 
And this is a great opportunity to go back to God's wisdom, something he's implanted at the creation, not just for Christians, but for all human beings, and something that points us not only to our need as human beings, but points us to the purpose for which we were made, which is to worship and enjoy fellowship with God forever. Hmm. Well, I hope that you've set aside all of your other appointments for today. In fact, uh, scratch that. I hope that you don't have any appointments for the rest of the week because I'm going to keep you online here to talk as long as I possibly can because I do think that this is a very important subject. I think that this is probably one of the most important subjects because it's so overlooked within our Christian circles. Uh, I would presume that of all of the spiritual disciplines, that rest is the one that's probably most attractive. It has the least amount of effort and work and, and, and sort of discipline associated with it. And yet it's the one we maybe assume just happens organically, so we don't give any of our time or attention to it. I think you're right. And I think there are, there are a number of misconceptions about what that rest involves. You know, do we just sit in a chair and stare at a wall for 24 hours? Short answer, no. God has, has given us something, thankfully, very productive to do, spiritually refreshing. So it may seem paradoxical, but we are active. And yet in that activity of worship and fellowship, we find rest for our soul and even for our bodies. Again, that's part of the wisdom in the Sabbath that God has, has built into it. Not something we'd figure out on our own, but something that God has revealed to us. And uh, I think it's worth stressing as well, to your point earlier, Adam, that this is a, a lost art, as it were. But if you go back just 100 years in church history, this was a common possession mm -hmm. of Christians. I'm Presbyterian. But it's not just for Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Anglicans across the board would have recognized the things we're about to talk through over the next few minutes. Yeah, I think there's something happened in that time period that put Sabbath, and in particular Sabbath, not the idea of rest in particular, but this idea of Sabbath at odds with grace, this idea of like freedom that we have. Uh, why would we have a restriction for something that's so good in our lives? Why do we have to force what is already something we want? Um, it's, odd, it's an odd little sort of conflict, isn't it? It is, and <clears throat> you even see in the, the Ten Commandments, not the first time the Sabbath is mentioned, but an important time the Sabbath is mentioned, just the form of that command, remember the Sabbath. Why would God tell us to remember it? Because he knows we're prone to forget. We get caught up in the busyness of the other six days. There are a lot of competing concerns. Of course, the devil doesn't want Christians worshiping God one day out of seven. So we have to make a point of dedicating time and energy to set that day aside. It's just not going to happen on its own. We've been talking with Guy Waters about his book. It's called The Sabbath as Rest and Hope for the People of God. It's actually a resource that fits in perfectly with our study in the Gospel of Luke. And it's one that we'd love to make available to you. You can find out more information by giving us a call. It's 508-362-7070. Or you can head over to our website at songtime.com. 
all throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is healing people and teaching on the Sabbath. It's actually a, a strong point that Luke is making in his Gospel account. He'll say, on this Sabbath day, on another Sabbath day, on this particular Sabbath day, because he wants us to understand that what Jesus is doing is presenting an understanding of who he is. So in Luke chapter 6, when he says that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he is telling his disciples that I am the source of your rest. While the Pharisees found the law as the means by which they approached God, their their sense of comfort and confidence that by keeping the law that God would be pleased with them, Jesus is saying that you can't bring your own righteousness, you must bring my righteousness. You must find your rest in me. That's what Jesus is saying, and, and that is seen even more clearly in our study this week. So we'll turn now to a message from Timothy Keller in Luke chapter 15, dealing with a text we're all so familiar with. It's the story or the parable of the prodigal son. You might even know this so well that you could tell it yourself and, and maybe even get all of the points right. But we're often associating this central character as the prodigal, the one who went away and spent all the money and wasted it and, and squandered it. But the truth is that the, the highlight, the, the point of this message is with the son who remained, the son who thought he could present himself as righteous before the father and be accepted for that reason and that alone. In this message from Timothy Keller, we'll unpack this very familiar story as we seek to understand what what this parable, what this passage is actually speaking to us. As Jesus would say, let those who have ears hear. This parable is famous, and for centuries it's been called the parable of the prodigal son, the son. That's a great mistake to think that this is a story about one son. It's a story of two sons. It's a story of a younger and an older brother. You are meant to compare and contrast them. And if you don't compare and contrast them the way Jesus wants you to, you're going to miss the radical message of this parable. And it is radical. Jesus is saying here this. Every thought the human race has ever had about how to connect to God, whether east or west, whether in the ancient, modern, postmodern era, in every religion, in all secular thought, it's been wrong. Every human idea of how to connect with God is wrong. Jesus is here to shatter all existing human categories. A historian once said that if you, uh, it's hard for us to grasp this, but when Christianity first arose in the world, nobody called it a religion. It wasn't seen as another religion. It was called the anti-religion. It was seen as anti-religion. The Romans called the Christians for 200 years atheists. And the reason for that was the Romans understood that what Christianity was saying about God was so different than what any other religion said that it really shouldn't be given the same kind of name. It's in a whole other category altogether. And they were right. And this passage tells us why they were right. Let's tell the story first of all. Let's make sure that we understand the story, and then let's draw out the three things I think Jesus is trying to tell us in the story. First of all, let's take a look at the story. The story is in two acts, actually. Act one, title, the lost younger brother. Act two, title, the lost elder brother. Now, in act one, <clears throat> act one begins with a speech. And the younger brother comes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, the original hearers, when they heard this, would have been absolutely astounded. See, if you had two sons, then when you died, the estate would be divided 
two-thirds of the elder, one-third of the younger. The reason for that was because the rule of thumb was that the oldest got a double portion of what all the other children got. So if there was only two, the eldest got two-thirds, the youngest got one-third. But that happened when the father died. When the son came and asked the father for his share of the estate now, the original hearers would have been astounded. One of the, one of the commentators, one, a scholar who knows something about the history and culture of the time, put it like this. To ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is to wish him dead. What the younger son is saying is, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want the father's things, but I don't want the father. My relationship with you has just been a means to an end, and I'm tired of it. I want my stuff now. Unheard of. But even more unheard of is the second half of verse 12. Because if the original hearers were amazed at the speech in 12, verse 12a, they were absolutely astonished by what the father did in verse 12b. Because this commentator uh, goes on and says, again, the commentator who knows something about history and culture of the time says, A traditional Middle Eastern father could only respond in one way. He would be expected to drive the boy out of the house with verbal, if not physical, and violent blows. But this father doesn't do that. What does it say? So he divided his property between them. But, you know, the translation uses the word property, but the Greek word that's used here is the word bios, from which we get our word biology, and it really says the father divided his life between them. Why we say that? We do not understand the relationship that people in the past had to their land, to their land. This father's estate was his land. His wealth was his land. He would have had to sell off a third of his land to give his son that part of the estate. Now, if you really want to understand this, you could always read a whole lot of books like Wendell Berry has written a lot of books about this. But if you would like a little bit uh, briefer glimpse, you can always look at the musical Oklahoma, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And there's one of the lines in the theme song that goes like this. Oh, we know we belong to the land and the land we belong to is grand. But did you notice what it says? The land we belong to. It doesn't say we be- the land belongs to us. We belong to it. And we don't understand that. But they identify with the land. Their very identity was bound up with the land. To lose your land was to lose yourself. And to lose part of your land was to lose your standing in the community, which was tied to how much land you had. This son is asking this father to tear his life apart, to tear apart his standing in the community, to tear himself apart. And he does. The hearers had never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond to such an insult like this. You know, what this father is doing, he is enduring. He is enduring the worst thing a human being can endure, rejected love. See, when someone treats us like this, what we do is we get mad and we retaliate and we reject and we do everything we possibly can do to diminish our affection for the person so we don't hurt so much. But this father maintains his love for his son, even under these circumstances, and endures the agony of rejected love. Throughout the years of doing ministry here at Songtime, I have heard many of your stories and many of your heartaches, especially those of you who have had to deal with prodigal children or grandchildren or loved ones. It's overwhelming, and nothing strikes at the heart of a parent than to see their child who was uh, once walking with God, once was a part of a local church, and, and even saying verses at the dinner table to now living in sin and far from the principles that were laid out for them. 
It's overwhelming, especially over the past couple of years. We've seen a sort of rise in this as as children really started to rebel against their parents even in their older ages and and to the point where they won't even talk with their parents or their family members. It's utterly heartbreaking. And yet it's it's something that I think affects just about every family in the church. We all know somebody who has walked away from the faith. Interestingly enough, this term prodigal actually means somebody who who spends money unwisely. That's why this child, the prodigal son who went away and spent all of his inheritance and lost it all, squandered it, so to speak. That's why he's called a prodigal, because he mismanaged the money that that he was given. But it has been ascribed to anyone who has walked away from the faith, as has mismanaged the, the treasures and the gifts that God has given to us. It's very, very important for us to remember, especially as Timothy Keller was pointing out, that there are actually two prodigals in the story. It's not just the one who has walked away, but also the one who remains. But by telling us this story, Jesus is giving us some insight into the heart of the Father, that he actually cares for prodigals. Whenever a parent or a grandparent comes to me and tells me these heartbreaking stories of someone that they love who has walked away from the faith, one thing that I want to remind them, which is absolutely crucial and and theologically founded, is that God loves your prodigal more than you could ever love that prodigal. You know, we want to fix them. We want, we'll, we'll, we'll beat them over the head with the truth. We'll tr- do anything we can to drag them back and pull them back into our, our good community and, and good graces. But the truth is, if you've ever tried anything even remotely close to that, you know that it just doesn't work. You cannot beat somebody into devotion to Christ. But God is pursuing them. God is faithful. He is waiting for them. His arms are open for them. And for all of our effort of, of trying to, to bring them back, ultimately what we are called to do is to trust God. We are called to take our children, our grandchildren, our prodigals, and to put them at the feet of the one who loves them. Lay them at the feet of the altar of God and trust that he will work all things together for good. It's hard to do. But that is at the very core of the gospel, to rely on Jesus and his work, not our own work, not our own righteousness, not what we can do in our own efforts, but relying on the work of the Spirit of God, who is able to save us and is able to save the Apostle Paul, who was, who was a tyrant in, in the Christian uh, church, the early Christian church. And yet he became a believer and he became a missionary for the kingdom of God. Don't count God and his work short. Trust God with your particular prodigal and and pray faithfully and, and look for those opportunities to share your faith and get others to pray for them as well. But ultimately, the most important thing is to entrust them in the care of God. I hope that this encourages you today. I know that this is an issue that is on the heart of many of our listeners. So if we've been able to encourage you, I hope that you'll be an encouragement to us. Let us know by writing to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or look us up on social media. Don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study looking at the story of the prodigal son, but really how this really hones in on the other son, the son who remains and 
points out his flaws and his primary problem. The older brother is saying, "How dare you use our wealth like this? I have obeyed you," and he insults the father. But what does the father do? He responds with a very tender word. He says, "My child, I still want you in the feast." On behalf of everyone here at Song Time, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 14:11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted.